Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR, and this is the first in a new World in 30 Minutes mini-series on the end of the world. For the rest of the summer, we're going to be breaking with the usual World in 30 Minutes format to talk about how the global order is gradually crumbling, falling apart, being challenged, bursting at the seams, or maybe even being reborn as something else. In each episode, I'm going to talk to a big thinker who's engaging with this central question of our times, from politicians to professors, from hackers to military strategists. And we're going to look at this issue from every angle, from the short term to the long term, from diplomacy in the real world to cybersecurity in the virtual world. We'll leave no stone unturned in trying to find out whether it really is the end of the world as we know it. But to give you a better idea, we better get straight on with this podcast, which is an interview with Edward Luce, the FT's chief US columnist and commentator and author of a big new book called The Retreat of Western Liberalism. Hi, Ed. Um, Maybe we can just start with with a big question, which is, for you, what is the, the liberal order in the real world? So the liberal order in the real world, I think, is something that you know, was present at the creation, in the words of Dean Acheson, uh, Harry Truman's Secretary of State after the the Second World War. It was the institutions, the US-led and shaped institutions, which are really, have really become part of our global furniture um, uh, for the last 70 years or so, namely the United Nations, um, the Bretton Woods institutions, World Bank, IMF, uh, NATO, um, of course, which was set up in 1949, and the World Trade Organization, formerly the General Agreement on Trade and Tariffs. And uh, th- these have been the uh, sort of key features of Pax Americana. Now, of course, for most of their existence, they were challenged ideologically uh, during the Cold War by by the Soviet Union. But since since the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989 and the dissolution of the Soviet Union in 1991, the uh, and the decade of uh, the American unipolar moment, as it was dubbed, um, these have become a far, far more obviously American-dominated, um, but nevertheless global institutions. So I think the liberal world order is really the U.S. world order that we use Pax Americana for, for shorthand. And now. Is it being destroyed by the America that created it, or is that something which is overblown? Well, I don't think destroyed is a a word that is yet merited, but I think undermined both consciously and unwittingly um, by Donald Trump. Uh, The America first agenda on which he was elected is something that most of his senior advisors don't agree with. You know, for example, Jim Mattis, the Secretary of Defense, H.R. McMaster, his national security advisor, probably Rex Tillerson, his Secretary of State. Uh, But and then on the economic side, people like Gary Cohn, his senior economic advisor, are more conventional supporters of the traditional U.S. led world order. But Trump, uh, Trump keeps toggling between rather reluctantly listening to this advice and then going ahead and saying what he really thinks. And I think that the fact that nobody can really rely on the word of the U.S. president uh, and nobody can can really bank on America being there when it matters is having a huge knock-on effect 
uh, not least on America's allies in, in Europe uh, and elsewhere, and even Canada, uh, where uh, Christian Freeland, Canada's foreign secretary, gave an unprecedented speech uh, in June to Canada's House of Commons, uh, saying, look, you've You've done a great job, America. We, 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 we couldn't have uh, made our way in the world without you, but we've now got to chart our own uh, sovereign course because you've clearly lost your appetite to uphold this order. So these kinds of, if you like, um, acts of uh, insurance um, against an America that's uh, really turning against its own creation are becoming more common and more rational, given, you know, given the uncertainty. Trump is Trump. And which bits of that order do you think are most under threat at the moment? So I think NATO is, is, a, is a huge question mark over NATO. Uh, uh, when Angela Merkel, uh, Germany's chancellor, you know, said we've really got to, you know, take our fate into our own hands nowadays. I think that was in re- reaction to Donald Trump's speech um, to, to the NATO at the NATO headquarters in May, where he refused to uphold Article 5, which is the sort of key linchpin of the whole treaty, the the coming to the defense of other NATO members. He has subsequently, rather grudgingly, a couple of times um, affirmed his commitment to Article 5. But the sense that he's a bit like one of those instantly disappearing Snapchat messages, you don't know three days later whether he will say the opposite. So NATO's a worry. And of course, Trump's highly ambivalent and very troubling relationship with Vladimir Putin, who is, uh, in a way, the dagger aimed at NATO, uh, is is the sort of big backdrop to that. But I don't think it's confined to NATO. I think if you look at the budget that Donald Trump sent to Capitol Hill a few weeks ago, it proposes drastic cuts to U.S. aid, to U.S. diplomacy, a third almost um, reduction in the State Department's budget. It proposes drastic cuts to the Bretton Woods institutions um, and all the sort of instruments of American um, soft power and diplomacy that, that are a sort of key lubricant to the whole system. Uh, and then, of course, there is the open global trading regime. And that's uh, Trump's position on uh, things like um, the WTO, NAFTA, relations, uh, trade relations with Asia are a work in progress. There are huge debates going on within the administration between the more conventional types who want to stick to the rules and the America first types like Stephen Bannon who uh, and Peter Navarro who want uh, America essentially to tear them up. And we don't know where that's, we, we don't know where that's going to end. But again, the, the very uncertainty of it uh, from a president whose first act, one of whose first acts, was to walk away from the Trans-Pacific Partnership that had been negotiated um, with, by the Obama administration and, and commenced by the Bush administration before him. It, it, clearly, that uncertainty over trade is, again, hugely unsettling for America's trading partners, um, which is pretty much everybody. So that's quite a lot of institutions and orders that you see um, under pressure. Um, which are the countries which you think are, are most endangered at the moment? If you were prime minister or president of a particular country in the world, which ones do you think will be uh, losing the most sleep? Uh, I think probably um, if you're one of the Baltic countries, you're probably pretty worried. So America you know, has done, um, Trump has not undone the fairly modest forward deployment of um, 
a few hundred American NATO troops under the aegis of NATO in the Baltic states to try and deter um, Russian uh, threats to to their sovereignty. But you've got, you've got to you've got to be concerned if you're a very small NATO country on the edge of, of NATO's borders and on the border with Russia. And I think there's understandable nervousness there. Um, I think that if you're a small, uh, one of the hundreds, well, I mean, it depends how you count it, but certainly many scores of places which host an American military base, you have to be really worried by a Donald Trump's stance on Qatar. Because Gata, as you know, pays, plays host to 11,000 U.S. servicemen and indeed was the launch pad uh, for the 2003 um, Iraq U.S.-led Iraq invasion. And it, its neighbors, led by Saudi Arabia, have severed ties and blockaded it and taken all measures short of war with Gata. And Trump has sympathized with them and, and goaded them. So if you are Djibouti or um, Singapore or any number of small small countries that host American military, you're going to be thinking, well, will they actually stand up for us when, when push comes to shove? And, and the answer is, we don't know. And the answer before January the 20th, 2017 was, of course we know. That's not even a question we would pose. Okay, so Baltic countries and hosters of um, uh, military bases be worried about their security. What about the other... Uh, regimes that you were talking about, the Bretton Woods ones, and I mean, are there other countries that are particularly um, exposed to the end of the liberal order in, in other in other areas? Well, I, I think it's more a, a sort of question of flux. I mean, one of the interesting things that we're seeing in one or two countries, I mentioned Canada, but I suspect Germany will will be another when we see its um, spending plans after its next election in September, is, is higher defense spending um, by some of America's NATO allies. Um, and in a way, there's a sort of delicious irony to that, because that's exactly what Trump and his predecessors, to be fair, have been urging uh, on America's allies. They've been accusing them in politer terms than Trump did is of being free riders. Yeah, I'm not sure that the, the previous secretary, Robert Gates, was particularly polite when he came to Europe and talked about the demilitarization of Europe. That's absolutely right. You know, in a way, Trump here is is actually continuity. But I think he's, again, a delicious irony. He's probably a more plausible form of continuity because people actually think he means it. Uh, yes, I I think that's definitely true. Um, so that's in the, the loser column. So who are the countries that are going to be the happiest about the end of this, um, uh, or the, the kind of threat to the uh, Western liberal order? Well, you know, China has had a really good 21st century um, so far. It just gets one political, geopolitical windfall after another. Um, in the, the Iraq invasion, uh, the war in Afghanistan, the draining of US resources, the I think shredding of American credibility in the Middle East and beyond within the Muslim world has been both directly and indirectly a huge boost to a China that isn't spending money, you know, on on wars that end in stalemate at best. Uh, and so, you know, China has been growing both militarily and extending its pocketbook diplomacy um, throughout this century at a time when America has really been uh, uh, making questionable investments with its hard and soft assets um, around the world. 
So I think that's one. China is one big gainer. It's, it's really- Before we move on to others, though, do you not think they might be a bit worried about, because they, you know, they, they have been quite big beneficiaries of the order that you discussed. Certainly the free trade economic order has been a, a huge boon to China. It is the biggest single uh, trading partner of most countries in the world now, if, uh, if you look at, if you don't count the EU as a, as a block. Um, and has also, you know, had all of its investments in Afghanistan protected by uh, by the United States. So if the U.S. pulls back and if the trading order collapses, it might help it in the short term and allow Xi Jinping to go to Davos and um, and give nice speeches. But might might it not be more kind of threatening to China in the longer term? I think so. I mean, until now, China is, um, you know, when it's heard American protectionist rhetoric, usually during primary campaigns, it's taken the view that, uh, well, there are primaries and then there's governing and, and people always, you know, sort of drop their um, China bashing when, when they get to the White House. And, and now they can't bank on that. Uh, I, I think the meeting between Xi Jinping and the first meeting between Xi Jinping and Trump in Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate in Florida was really, uh, really interesting. You know, China promised to do something it can't do and won't do, which is, you know, deal with the North Korea problem, or at least that's what Trump thought he heard. I very much doubt Xi Jinping said it. And in exchange, Trump, you know, dropped all the campaign threats against China of, of branding it a currency manipulator, of imposing uh, a 45% import duty on Chinese imports. So, uh, yeah, China, of course, has got to be worried. The, 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 there is a delicious irony of China, of Xi, um, you know, taking up the mantle of leadership. It is, as you say, the largest beneficiary from the status quo. And he doesn't want that status quo to be rocked. So, uh, you know, that's got to be a concern on China's part. But on the other hand, you know, Trump pulled out of the TPP. The TPP did not include China. The TPP was explicitly sold as an Asian Pacific American trading bloc that would set rules China would have no choice but to follow. Now that, you know, that sort of Damocles sword has been removed. So that, in a way, is a pretty big geopolitical uh, windfall. It's kind of an American Brexit in, in trading terms. Yeah. So, so China's the, the first big loser. So, what? Are the, uh, sorry, winner from the, from uh, from this. Who are the other winners? Russia. Um, you know, I think in the short term, um, Putin is a huge winner because his goal. I, I don't know whether he actually expected Trump to win. I don't think anybody expected Trump to win. I don't think Trump expected Trump to win. And so, Putin is a bit like the proverbial dog that catches the car. It's like, so what do you do when you catch the car? Uh, and and so this might be a bigger a bigger windfall than he bargained for. But if his goal, which I believe it is, is to disrupt confidence in the Western system in general and uh, the reputation and credibility of liberal democracy in particular, well, things are going pretty well for him. And you know, I'm here in Washington, and. It is quite extraordinary the dynamics of the Russia investigations into into Donald Trump. They they are getting um, more surreal, but also more real by the day. And uh, again, this completely sort of hobbles Trump's ability to really conduct any kind of um, of, of coherent foreign policy. He is tot- his bandwidth is totally absorbed uh, by the Russia investigations, and I, I think that I think. Putin will find this to be 
an opportunity, a, a rolling opportunity as, as, um, as these investigations continue. Okay. Are there any other winners? That's hard to say. I mean, if you look at, if you look at the Islamist groups, you know, they're being rolled up uh, in Mosul, collapsed. ISIS has been um, ousted from Mosul. They've lost a lot of territory in Syria, uh, continued to lose territory in Syria under um, Trump's administration. So, you, you know, you could argue that I'm sure he does, well, he has, uh, that America is helping to deliver on its promises to wipe out ISIS. But the big geopolitical gainer here is Iran. Uh, just two days ago, Donald Trump um, announced an end to support for the, the U.S.-backed CIA-trained Free Syrian Army, the, Syri the so-called Syrian moderates, which is a huge sort of victory for Assad, Russia, and Iran. Uh, and then in Iraq, you know, it's really, uh, it's really the Shiite brigades sponsored by Iran that have been doing a lot of the work in fighting ISIS. And even when they haven't been doing the work, I know that it was the Iraqi army with the Americans that recaptured Mosul. But even when they haven't been doing the work, there is now a vacuum that they're moving to fill. And this is an Iran-shaped vacuum. So Iran, you know, has Syria and Iraq increasingly within its orbit. And, and, and in many respects, looking like satellite countries. So we've been talking a lot about this as a phenomenon of Trump. But in your book and uh, your other writings, you talk about Trump as a symptom rather than as a cause of, of this. Can you tell us what you think the causes are? Sure. I think they are pretty deeply baked um, economic causes um, within the Western world uh, of the squeeze on middle incomes and on middle skilled uh, people in the labor force, which has been pretty um, intense and pretty relentless. For most of the last generation, the big exception was really the 1990s when um, all income groups saw really very significant wage gains for about four or five years. Um, mostly, I think, to do with the fact that you had the Internet revolution uh, and it coincided with center-left governments, the Clinton administration in, in America, Blair um, in the latter part of it in Britain, um, center-left governments who shaped some of that boom in progressive ways in terms of public spending. So the, the 1990s is the blip that really, you know, uh, of, of a larger trend of stagnation, of um, a declining income mobility, which really hits at the sort of core of the American creed of equality of opportunity, because that's sort of built on mobility that you work hard, play by the rules, you get ahead. Well, lots of lots and lots of millions of Americans have been doing that and not getting ahead. And some of them have been falling behind. Uh, the most telling statistic to me is, a, is a, a question Gallup asks Americans, what class do you belong to? And in 2000, 31% of Americans said they were lower class. Today, that number is 49%. And I, I think unless you look at, uh, you know, what's been happening in America through that prism, it's very hard to understand the kind of rage and apparent irrationality that leads people to vote for Donald Trump. Uh, it's a sort of cry of deep frustration and contempt for politics as normal. So if we see Trump as a response to this rage and to the dysfunction domestically in the US and... Thing, you know, that probably does mean that this cycle could carry on for a while. It will certainly, it could even outlast Donald Trump. 
um, if it really is structural. So what do you think the rest of the world can and should be doing to defend the, the liberal order that they uh, have benefited so much from in recent years? So there was a very interesting moment uh, on the day that Donald Trump pulled America out of the Paris um, deal on global warming, on climate change, um, on Paris Accord. Obviously, many and most of America's allies were expressed disappointment and said they were going to continue. It would not affect their pledges. And China, Li Keqiang, China's prime minister, happened to be in Europe and all kinds of statements were made by Europeans and Chinese. Then Narendra Modi, India's prime minister, was in Europe. Likewise, we will not curb our um, Paris Accord uh, agreements. But the most interesting statement to me came from Justin uh, Trudeau, Canada's Prime Minister. We were about to say Justin Bieber. But... Uh, yeah, Justin Bieber. Yeah, well, you know, nowadays that, that wouldn't surprise me. Um, the Kardashians, you know, took a radical position on um, Trudeau said, uh, we're very disappointed by the action taken by the US federal government. And you, know, you don't hear that language. Normally it would be by America. And I think Canadians are hugely invested in relationships with city mayors in America, with governors like Jerry Brown of California, all of which, like America's allies, have said, well, we're going to carry on. Washington can do this, but we're going to carry on. So I think you're going to see a lot of that, what the Canadians are rather, you know, intelligently improvising. But do you think that Justin Trudeau and, you know, the mayor of London and Angela Merkel can stem the the retreat of, um, of, of well of America's support for its own order. I mean, is that possible? Particularly when you have people like Xi Jinping and Narendra Modi and Erdogan and Putin running the other big powers in the world. It, it, it's hard to imagine. I mean, you know, Trudeau and Merkel are not going to, you know, put money into a joint kitty and send their own seventh um, fleet into the Taiwan Straits. Yeah. Uh, that's not going to happen. Um, and I think. Uh, uh, you know, I think it's in most areas. If America is is with retrenching at best, then you're you're not you're not going to see any one power replace the United States. You're likely to see chaos. Uh, I, I you know I've never signed up to the view that the U.S. world Lord order is going to pass into a China world order. I don't find that very plausible. It doesn't have alliances. It sparks fear rather than uh, sort of any kind of admiration. Um, amongst its neighbors. And so I think the jostling to fill the vacuum is going to be quite destabilizing. China in the sort of South China Sea, East China Sea and beyond and how its neighbors like Japan behave. Japan as well is stepping up defense spending, by the way. That's going to be, you know, a really good test case of this. And we're seeing it happening real time. Last week, China sent an aircraft carrier to the Mediterranean to conduct joint naval exercises with Russia. Last week, China also opened its own per- first foreign permanent military base in Djibouti. Uh, so there's, there's big geopolitical stuff happening, and it's happening um, quite quickly. Uh, so I think, uh, as you say, it's hard for the Europeans and the Canadians and others to fill the vacuum of, a, of an enthused and competent American global leadership. It's very hard to imagine that's possible. So what do you think they, what do you think they can do? Well, the best piece of news this year has been Macron's victory in France. And then, you know, the even more um, unlikely majority uh, control that his party, which didn't exist 15 months ago, en marche in the French Assembly elections in June. So I I think if you want the most important action here 
is going to be whether the Franco-German motor can be revived in Europe. And we'll, we'll, we'll know more about that after September, after Angela Merkel does or doesn't get re-elected. But if they manage to rev it up again, what, where, what direction do you think they, they should be driving in? Should it be about building walls around Europe to defend it from the sort of global chaos that you're describing? Or are there things that Europeans could do with some of these other powers, uh, you know, with, with the Chinese? I know you, you also spent a long time in India and written a great book on India. I mean, it was a slightly different India that you were reporting on than, than Modi's India, but uh, there were great hopes of, of India and Brazil at various different stages. But I think some of those hopes have maybe receded. Yes. Well, I mean, in India's case, the economic hopes haven't. But, you know, its fidelity to secularism, liberal secularism under Modi is very much in question. I agree with that. Um, I don't think the short answer is I don't think that, you know, a revived, let's say, let's say Franco-German motor does get going. That's good internally, I think, in terms of the hopefully a loosening of the fiscal pact within Europe, uh, maybe a rebooting of growth in the club med economies and a sort of binding together uh, of the European project post-Brexit. But I agree with you. This doesn't involve a projection of Western force beyond the West. That's not that's not going to be the character or even the intention of a Franco-German revival. So that's hard to imagine. Britain, of course, I'm sad to say, and I'm sure you'd be sad to agree with, is simply walked off the chessboard. It's not a factor at the moment, and it's not likely to be for many years. Um, so that's a big loss. And it's felt very keenly here in Washington amongst uh, non-Trump and people, you know, who, who pay attention to these things. So that's, that's a big concern. Uh, and countries like Japan and South Korea are really wondering what to do. They've been very, very good at sort of pandering to Trump, making friends with his son-in-law and his daughter and doing all the right things um, in Trumpian terms. But they, they, they don't trust Trump either. They can't predict him. I see a lot of um, East Asian officials come through Washington and they ask, you know, they want to know what's going, what the hell's going on. So they meet people like me and perhaps naively on their part, expecting I'm, I'm going to tell them what the hell's going on. But I can tell you from those meetings, they don't know what the hell's going on and they're really worried. OK, um, that's quite a, uh, an uplifting <laughs> place to, to, to end up in this discussion. There are two um, questions that I'm asking all the, the guests on it. So maybe I can ask you them to kind of round off the podcast. The first is to complete the sentence, um, the liberal order is dot, dot, dot. How would you complete that? The liberal order is under serious question. And then the other is to help people um, find interesting sources to, to go deeper on these topics. So obviously at the top of the list, we will put a link up to it on the website, is the, the Retreat of Western Liberalism by Edward Luce. But apart from that, what else can people read if they want to go deeper? That's a very good question. I, I, I think the huge sort of silver lining, or one of them to uh, post-Trump uh, election, is the surge in demand for all kinds of non-alternative facts, like the New York Times subscription rate's gone through the roof, the Financial Times has, Economist is doing well. I would, um, I would pay for your professional news. Uh, you know, I think it's been given a bad rap. And uh, and we need to actually, as consumers, realize that fake news is is free. But as Churchill said, what's the saying? Um, a lie's traveled halfway around the world before truth has put its boots on. So we need to help truth put its boots on. 
Okay, so uh, a subscription to the Financial Times. <laughs> no, to go to the uh, the European Council on Foreign Relations. I mean, it's uh, well, that's free, like fake news. Uh, <laughs> well, I'm I'm sure if people are paying in kind with their time and and education, and they would benefit from it. Great, thank you very much. That's uh, it's been great talking to you. Um, and if uh, people have any comments, feel free to write to me at mark.leonard at ecfr. EU. We will put links up to all the things that we mentioned on our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. If you've enjoyed it, please do tell people about it through social media. And even more importantly, write a review of the podcast on iTunes. In order to encourage you to do this, we have decided to create a special commemorative mug for the end of the world series and if you write a review we will even if it's bad we will send you an end of the world mug to your address so please write to me at mark.leonard at ecfr.eu with a link to your review and an address to send the mug to and you will have something which will make you the envy of your family and friends and will hopefully enjoy thinking about the podcast uh, every time you have a coffee in the morning. But for now, from Edward Luce and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFL's podcast is Archie Hall and our editor is Bullin Goemin. We would like to thank the Finnish Ministry of Foreign Affairs for kindly supporting the research that went into this podcast. Mm-hmm.